This is a Federal News Network podcast. When you think of the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, what comes to mind? Weekly patch updates, Log4j, SolarWinds, ransomware. But the agency has a much wider mission than cybersecurity, critical as that might be. Another element of CISA recently noted its 15th anniversary. We get that story now from CISA's Associate Director for Bombing Prevention, Sean Hagland. Mr. Hagland, good to have you on. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk with you today and to give some time to this very important subject. All right. So first of all, tell us exactly what the bombing prevention function does. And I imagine that's a lot of interagency coordination here. Sure, Tom. If I could, though, uh, I'd just kind of like to start a little bit about my background. I was an Air Force Explosive Ordnance Disposal Technician for 25 years. And so during my time as a bomb technician, I really had an opportunity both domestically and in combat environments to see firsthand what the impacts of improvised explosive device or IED attacks have on schools, markets, residences, critical infrastructure, and lost quite a few colleagues and teammates along the way. And so not only do I have a very professional interest in this line of work, I also take it very personally. So to answer your question, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, or CISA's Office for Bombing Prevention, is really focused on preventing, protecting against, mitigating the effects of and responding to improvised explosive devices here domestically and helping our partners and allies do the same. And so that mission has us squarely focused on protecting critical infrastructure, working with private sector partners, our federal, state, local, tribal, and territorial entities to um, mitigate those explosive effects on critical infrastructure. And how do you relate and how does your mission, say, impinge on or overlap with or how do you draw the line with ATF, alcohol, tobacco, explosives, and firearms? So that's a great question. And it's not only limited to ATF. We have some fantastic partners that we work with across DOJ. FBI is a key partner. ATF is a key partner. Even within DHS, FEMA, TSA, we have a wide range of critical partners in this space. And it really does take a whole of government approach to attack this problem. So the way we coordinate our efforts, and this is truly critical, is through a couple different mechanisms. The first and probably foremost is the Joint Program Office for Countering IEDs. We have a policy that this space is premised on, and that's Presidential Policy Directive 17. And through PBD 17, that Joint Program Office for Countering IED represents a coordinated whole of government approach in this space. And so we have that kind of formal mechanism, but we also have fantastic partnerships uh, individually and collectively with those other departments and agencies and the other components within DHS. Because sometimes someone making a bomb is intent on hurting or killing people, which is not strictly critical infrastructure, as opposed to, say, placing the bomb at a base of a bridge or near a pipeline, that type of thing. So I guess at some point you cooperate in tracking the bomb-making materials and tracking activities, but then at some point you don't know what the deployment objective will be for the criminal. You don't. And this threat space spans not only the actual attacks, but we also see a lot of bomb threats lately. We saw a string of bomb threats against historically black colleges and universities. In November of last year, we saw the same thing against Ivy League. This has a real impact also. It's loss of business, loss of productivity, evacuations. It takes a toll on people's mindset. But to your point on the bomb making materials and whether you're attacking a bridge or a residence, in many ways, our approach is the same. We have a fantastic program in partnership with the FBI known as Operation Flashpoint that we've stood up over the last year. 
It's the next iteration of the Bomb Making Materials Awareness Program, which has been part of our Office for Bombing Prevention efforts for many, many years. But this partnership is key in terms of trying to get ahead of a bombing attack. And that's really where we look to partner with the FBI to leverage the regional field forces and reach out to our point of sale retail partners and have them become more familiar in recognizing suspicious purchasing activities and reporting those so that the FBI can follow up and investigate. And Tom, there's 250,000 retail point of sale locations across the U.S. that carry these types of commonly available materials that you can use to build a bomb. We're speaking with Sean Hagland. He's Associate Director for Bombing Prevention at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. So in what you say, in many ways, points to Oklahoma City as kind of a turning point for this need for this type of awareness and tracking, more so even than 9-11. Absolutely. This is really, truly an enduring threat. It's an enduring tactic that we've seen for many years. There was the World Trade Center bombing in 1993, the Oklahoma City bombing in 1996. In fact, two years ago on Christmas, we had the Nashville bombing. It's an enduring tactic that poses a threat to the American public, our critical infrastructure, mass gatherings. But there is a solution. There are steps that we can take to get ahead of this. And that Flashpoint program is one truly great example of it, but it's not our only approach. We leverage a lot of different complementary programs across the Office for Bombing Prevention to try and stay ahead of this threat. And you have a program called Tripwire, the Homeland Security's information sharing website that focuses on IED threats and preparedness, which gets me to the question that are most of the threats reported and sometimes uncovered and sometimes unfortunately carried out in the improvised explosive device, the homemade type of realm, or does ordnance, say, from other countries or stolen, whatever, also get into this issue? Domestically, it's much, much more common that these are commonly available materials. There are episodic instances where a piece of military ordnance is uh, recovered or potentially used, but that's very rare domestically. Our primary threat here are those just commonly available materials that people can use to build a bomb at home. And there are several challenges on this front that we attack directly through that presidential policy directive and the implementation plan. And one is just the wide availability of not only the materials, but also the information. There are so many encrypted web-based platforms that allow our adversaries to share information on where to get these materials, how to build a bomb, how to conduct an attack. And so that's another aspect that we carefully consider. So it sounds like you need to coordinate a lot of intelligence gathering almost, say a retail pattern if it's reported or shipments or something in that sense. And also the dark web where people get together to exchange tricks of the trade. And that's really where our partnership with the ATF and FBI, our DOJ partners comes into play. We're not a law enforcement entity. We focus mainly on on that preparedness aspect, training, information sharing, those types of things. But we do have to maintain a situational awareness of the threat space. And that's where those law enforcement investigations and, and other facets come into play and are very important for us. And by the way, how often do bomb threats and bomb incidents happen in the United States? So we've seen over the last couple of years, a pretty disturbing trend. So from 2019 to 2020, we saw about a 71% increase in actual bombing events, and that equated to over 12,000 explosive-related incidents. And that could be bomb threats, materials recovered. The statistics from 2021 are still being compiled between the various agencies, but certainly from 2019 to 2020, we saw a very significant uptick. 
Wow. And so is there anything that the general public can do to help in this effort of explosive prevention? Absolutely. We have a ton of resources available on the uh, CISA, CISA.gov website that are applicable to the general public, to first responders, to our critical infrastructure stakeholders. So there's a, a lot of good information there. But really, if you think about it, the public are kind of first line of defense. There are our eyes and ears across the community. They see things that maybe uh, haven't risen to the level of, of a law enforcement involvement. And so the public certainly plays a key role. There is a lot of good information out there. 1-800-CALL-FBI. Uh, there are several resources out there that the public can leverage, uh, not only to become more aware of what the threat is, but also what, what they can do to report suspicious activities. Sean Hagland is Associate Director for Bombing Prevention at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for your time, Tom. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity, and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader? And what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and 
obviously seeking a job, she always managed to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Mm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated. Uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay Black women, uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka, so I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so Black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a Black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind. 
um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job. And then let them roll. And that's not always easy. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.